Commodity derivatives are the riskiest uh, financial asset class. When I was 15 years old, and my Aunt Catherine, my Uncle Claude would lose money farming, and she would make money uh, trading commodity derivatives, not only in the Chicago exchanges, on the London exchanges. So Aunt Catherine would be sitting there, curlers in her hair, Financial Times, Investors Daily, so on and so forth. You know, this, of course, is very old school, so she's sitting there with a calculator and her, her notebooks and everything like that. And she's trying to explain this to me. I said, Aunt Catherine, I just, I just don't understand. And she looks at me and she says, Stevie, the next stop after commodity derivatives is Las Vegas. You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. One of the fundamental principles that IATP uh, does its work from is that farmers should be paid a fair price for what they produce. Historically, our analysis has focused on how trade agreements are affecting those prices. But another major way in which prices are affected is through the financialization of the commodity market, meaning how banks and financial institutions turn those physical goods like crops and livestock and dairy products into financial products, which are then traded on the market. Joining me today is Steve Supan, Senior Policy Analyst at IATP. Uh, Steve recently wrote a blog on the new cattle math, uh, which is up on the IAT website, IATP website. Um, let, Steve, let's start at the beginning. How does a, uh, a cow, for example, get turned into a financial product? Oh, thanks, Josh. Um, basically, the commodity markets are designed to help um, commodity users, processors, producers uh, manage manage the price risks uh, of of their commodity, and and for that purpose, uh, contracts are are created um, that allow a broad range of buyers and sellers to as they say in the business, discover the price of the commodity through trading. What happens in the financialization of the commodity markets is that uh, the commercial users of those contracts are pushed out uh, by the volatility and the associated high volatility costs uh, of banks, insurance companies, hedge funds, and so on and so forth, uh, who take those contracts and, and dominate their trading. So if, if I am summarizing this right, um, there's a future that's created, which is kind of a bet on what the, the price of the commodity, in this case, maybe a cow, is going to be so that uh, a farmer, for example, is able to get a more stable price for what they're producing. But what's actually happening is through um, the way in which commodity futures are bundled, they're turning into the same type of derivative products that we saw in, say, the, during the mortgage crisis. So what happens with, with prices is that when a farmer or a rancher goes to uh, a grain elevator or to a stockyard, um, uh, the price that the stockyard or the elevator offers is uh, is based on what the the derivatives market price is, plus associated costs with you know storage or drying of grain or uh, the feeding of livestock, etc. 
What happens when uh, the market becomes so volatile uh, is that the the your your usual commodity users simply can't use the market effectively. Who would to the manage usual their price. commodity users be? Yeah, it could be everybody from you know very large processing firms, um, you know such as General Mills, to uh, a farmer cooperative, individual farmers, individual ranchers sometimes uh, play the commodity markets to to make money, but individuals, uh, not a lot because it takes a lot of time to study the market. And instead, the farmers and ranchers are actually producing commodities. Right. So in this case, um, you know, you would have a farmer or a rancher selling to um, somewhere, someone like JBS or Cargill, who would then uh, bundle all of those cows and that would be what the processors are paying? Is that? Uh, probably not selling directly okay. to JBS. They'd be selling to a feedlot owned by right. uh, a, a company. And that's what's, <clears throat> what, I, what I pointed out in my blog and what's really become uh, a new development is to have uh, financial companies now owning the cattle. That hasn't happened before. Right. And so this is part of maybe part of the trend that we've seen where – uh, financial institutions, banks, hedge funds are investing in real assets. Um, you know, we know they're investing a lot in, like, say, condos in Manhattan, for example. But then they've also been buying up farmland. And now, is is this part of that trend? It is part of the trend because what you want from the viewpoint of a financial company is not so much owning the actual assets. Uh, but rather the data from the assets that you can then use to uh, influence the cash price for commodity and on the basis of that uh, develop uh, trading algorithms and bots to drive trading in the financial contracts. So basically, if you, if you, if you own a lot of the assets, then you're able to um, kind of package them into financial products based on your insider information of what the what the pre- future value of the price might be. Yeah, and it's legal insider trading. Okay. <laughs> or legalized insider trading. I yeah. Um, so in this case, uh, the focus of your blog was on how um, JBS, which is the largest meat processor, uh, meat company in the world, um, which IATP has done a lot of reporting on, they're based in Brazil, um, uh, sold... Uh, it's it, it owned a sub-company called Five Rivers Feeding, and they sold that to Pinnacle Asset Management. And my understanding is that uh, Pinnacle Asset Management owns the cows, but basically JBS offloaded the risk, and they're still the ones who are turning the cows into food products. Yeah, okay. I mean, basically the, the, the arrangement was uh, that Pinnacle Asset Management owns the cattle, but all those cattle are, are, are pre-contracted to JBS slaughterhouses. And so the risk that JBS offloads are the risks associated with animal disease and uh, you know migrant worker uh, uh, labor issues and, and that sort of thing. Um, and JBS d- desperately needed the money because uh, they were facing, uh, are facing a $3.2 billion fine um, uh, from the Brazilian government for having been uh, convicted of uh, bribing hundreds 
of Brazilian officials, including the president of the Republic of Brazil. And so uh, JBS, uh, as, I, as I kind of outlined very briefly in the blog, uh, one of the one of the ways they were making money, and indeed more money than uh, than they were making by selling meat products, was by betting against the value of the Brazilian currency, the real or the real, Portuguese, and and uh, they made a, a lot more money betting against the the real, and they did so even while they were negotiating the so-called leniency fine of three point two billion dollars, and so for them for them to uh, sell their assets to a financial company is just part of uh, part of their overall strategy. Uh, one of the things that's so remarkable about the whole uh, JBS buy-up of uh, U.S. meatpacking companies and uh, feedlots was that uh, you know Congress was supposed to do due diligence with the assistance of the USDA about the um, uh, integrity of the operators uh, and the company, and obviously they failed in their due diligence. Mm -hmm. And so what we found is that the Five Five Rivers feeding lot, uh, that company is actually operating at a loss, but their owners, Pinnacle Asset Management, is still making money in the futures market? Well, they're hoping to. I mean, the the, the deal has yet to be approved by regulators. Right. Okay. Um, uh, one of these regulators will be the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is the uh, government entity in charge of uh, regulating uh, commodity derivatives contracts. Um, and one of the things that they point out in the, uh, in the blog is that under the Trump administration, um, the the enforcement philosophy uh, of the agency has changed. So now um, uh, financial actors are to self-report their violations of the law. And uh, if they do violate the law, and there's always been already been cases of this, um, the requirements, uh, the reporting and record-keeping requirements of being a bad actor under the law are waived uh, by the Trump administration. So essentially you have uh, a crime with almost no punishment. Whoa. <laughs> um, let's let's, let's go, kind of go back to that original question. So how what is Pinnacle Asset Management going to uh, – what are they going to do? Uh, or I guess why does it make sense for them to own an operation that's operating at such a big loss? Um I guess I, I just want a little more explanation of that process of how owning that owning those feedlots that are operating at a loss is still translating could still translate if the steel goes through into profits off the derivative market. I mean, so what you're doing uh, there, there's there's a couple of factors here. First is just the uh, the weight the financial weight of the investment company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the case of Pinnacle Asset Management, um, the investors are not uh, commercial hedgers. They're not processors. They're not ranchers. They're not people who transport commodities. They're not people who have a commercial interest in, in, in commodities. Actually, there's a lot of retirement accounts, uh, pension accounts. Uh, and so you've got you know, a fair amount of financial heft uh, that can be bet to either drive a price down or to drive the price of, you know, live cattle or beef uh, futures products up or down. So, 
in the you know barring barring a col- complete collapse uh, in the in the cash sales of the asset, um, you can make money off the volatility um, that you can generate through your trading algorithms. Mm-hmm. And so, is the the trading um, basically um, it's capitalizing those firms so that even though they are their operations costs are losing money there's still the stock price is still going up or the asset price is still going up at the company and they're still gaining capitalization i mean i think about it in like like amazon for example where you know amazon has operated at a loss for quite a while um with the idea that you know they're gaining market share they're changing the market and so they're still attracting like a huge amount of investment um, is this similar to that, or is it a different process? It, it, it's different in this sense. I mean, you know, commodities are 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 stable assets. They're not like you know unicorns, you know, where you have uh, the app that may convert the world. This is this is something. The, the way in which money is made, is, there, there's two ways. One is uh, through the through betting that the asset price will fall. Mm-hmm. Not just that it will increase, and so you can have within the same company uh, a trader who's designed to um, to you know construct various strategies to make money off of falling prices. Another one who's making money off of uh, uh, prices that are, are rising, and then another one who actually is betting on uh, the volatility index or the so-called VIX. And um, it's a it's a mathematical operation, mm-hmm. and in uh, in order to succeed, uh, the operation not only has to have a good strategy, but it has to have some weight of money behind it. Mm-hmm. And the weight of money of the um, of the financial asset firms is much larger than that of most commercial hedgers, and so that's how they drive the price. And <clears throat> another really important factor here that I didn't get to point out in the blog is that prior to 2004, uh, commodity exchanges were public entities. And so they were to perform a service, but in 2004, they became for-profit companies. Mm -hmm. And so for them, uh, it's in their interest to maximize the number of transactions and contracts um, that they are running. And so even though uh, the amount of financial speculation is far, far, far uh, in excess of what is needed so that commercial hedgers can get in and out of the market when they want to, um, it, it, the exchanges under the self-enforcement philosophy of the Trump administration um, have absolutely no incentive whatsoever uh, to limit the amount of trading that goes on. And one thing that I did mention in the blog is that um, it's been eight years now uh, since the uh, commodity flash crash when you had, you know, uh, really kind of Bitcoin-like dives in the price of the asset. Um, and uh, the, the proposal at that time back in 2010 was, well, we have to develop a rule for um, how these automated trading devices are to be used, how governments are to be able to access the source code. And, of course, Wall Street, the exchanges have fought this rule, uh, tried to water it down, and thus far it's been paralyzed. Right. And so 
ultimately that's a big part of what's driving volatility in the markets. What else is driving that volatility? Is it really just speculation and deregulation, or is there are there other global factors that are causing the high volatility that we're seeing right now? Well, so basically, your kind of financial instruments um, are, are constructed with some reference to fundamental factors. But once you have the weight of finance behind an instrument, the, uh, the, the kind of laws of supply and demand, logistics and determining a price uh, become minor factors. Right now, for example, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is the largest commodity exchange in the world, is facing yet another uh, instance in which uh, the cash prices and the futures prices are not coming together. They're not converging uh, the way they would in a supply-demand-driven situation. And so the, ex the explanation uh, of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is, oh, it's a contract design failure. This is what they said 10 years ago when the wheat contract was falling apart and wheat growers and processors were losing their shirt because of this kind of volatility that's you know, driven by the bots. When you're not, the, the, the trading strategy is not, is not responding to market fault fundamentals. It's prices changing price, chasing prices, and even more importantly, chasing rumors of prices because a lot of these contracts are not traded on public exchanges, even if they dominate the market. And so what happens then is the traders hear about a rumor about what a major trader is doing. So, for example, Morgan Stanley, major, major trader in commodities. And they say, oh, we got to get on that action. Let's recalibrate our bot and, and we will, you know, we will make money too. Mm -hmm. Not always. If I'm a, if I'm a rancher, um, is the, uh, the fact that this asset management company is selling derivatives on the market and basically creating uh, a higher price for the derivative than uh, the actual cash value of the commodity, is that an incentive to keep prices low or at least a disincentive to uh, invest in any sort of uh, infrastructure or whatever that would actually raise prices? Well, this really depends on what kind of cattle rancher you are. I mean, uh, uh, the great majority of, of the members of the National uh, Beef Cattlemen's Association are people who contract directly with um, the slaughterhouses. And so they get prices from the slaughterhouses that are not publicly published, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, they, if, if they wish to bet in the beef and uh, uh, live cattle markets through their, you know, through cooperatives or commodity pool operators, they can do so with, again, legal, well, let's just say questionably legal insider information, right? Because now we're not talking about, now we're talking about uh, the likely violation of the Packer and Stockyards Act, which the Justice Department has not enforced at least since 2006. Okay. Right. So uh, let me let me just try to summarize this. Because Pinnacle Asset Management will have access to the insider information, uh, the, the price at the feedlot or at the slaughterhouse, um, that they're able to take that insider information, turn it into derivative products, 
sell it on the market. So regardless of the operational cost of the slaughterhouse or the feedlot, uh, or you know the assets that the the physical assets that they're owning, um, that insider information is really what's enabling them to make money on the derivatives market. Well, that's the basis of it. So, you know, in the, the term insider information, when it's used in equity markets regulated by the you know the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know that's an illegal practice. It's also mm-hmm. illegal for JBS to trade on insider information about uh, the value of the real. However, if you are the owner of the asset, you know, for example, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs's huge ownership of aluminum or, uh, or, you know, Morgan Stanley's huge ownership of oil, uh, or in this case, the much smaller Pinnacle Asset Management owning these cattle, okay, you've got the information about the, about the feedlot costs and you've also got a guaranteed customer in JBS. And so this is, this is, a, this is a perfect game um, and it's legal as long as the, um, the CFTC decides not to enforce uh, the laws against excessive speculation and market manipulation. And what we've seen from the, from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission thus far is that when you have a major, major violator like the USB group, which was caught manipulating precious metal markets, they basically give them a tap on the wrist because for them a few million dollars fine is nothing. It's a cost of doing business. And then they automatically waive the bad actor uh, uh, rule, which would have cost them hundreds of millions of dollars to be on uh, to to be issuing detailed and public reports, uh, to have to spend a lot more on record keeping, a lot more on compliance, and so on and so forth, and do so for you know x x number of years. So basically, uh, you've got you have an invitation to. Um, market rule lawbreaking because the penalty, as they say in the business, is not dissuasive. It will not persuade anybody to not violate the law. Right. Um, And just to tie this back to some of the broader arguments that we've been making at IETP is that you can relate this to trade insofar as the way and this is one more way in which, you know, these very large uh, investors and companies are vertically integrating uh, so that they're able to control, in this case, sort of the supply chain from the the field to the stock market, as opposed to sort of the, the supply chain from the producer to the consumer uh, around the world, right? So this is this is basically um, this is a form of vertical integration, and it's uh, taking power away from producers and putting it in the hands of the speculators. Well, another, yeah, another way of looking at this is really. Um, you know, your transnational agribusiness companies are always looking to um, offload risk, right? And so in, uh, in the case of NAFTA, uh, the arrangement for NAFTA is to uh, take the part of the cattle breeding uh, process, which is most risky, which is birth to six months or so, um, and to, you know, put that in Canada, put it in uh, Mexico, bring the cattle over the border into the feedlots. And now you've got a situation in which, you know, the feedlots used to be owned 
by people who actually would play the commodity markets because they had commercial interest in those markets. Now they're owned in not just Five Rivers, but you know these feeding lot operations are owned by financial entities. But the the one that the Pinnacle Asset is particular of particular interest because uh, the company is so corrupt and it was it was given uh, a uh, a blessing uh, by the by the U.S. Senate Agriculture Committee in 2008 to go ahead and buy 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 right uh, that this will make the cattle markets more efficient and consumers will benefit and all that sort of thing and of course this has not happened a, a massive due diligence failure both on the part of Congress and the regulators. And now everybody's covering it up by this massive sell-off of, uh, of you know, JBS USA assets, JBS Australia, and so on and so forth. All right. Well, Steve Supan, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more information about what you heard today, including to read Steve's blog on the new math for cattle and the full report that IATP uh, did, uh, primarily authored by Shafali Sharma, on the meat industry in Brazil, which looks very heavily into JBS, including allegations of slave labor, documentation of slave labor, I should say, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org.